Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Good to join together our voices, isn't it? Is there someone in your life that you might think of as the last person in the world to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation? Or maybe the last person in the world that would darken the door of a church? If you're thinking of someone like that, it may be a relative, it may be a neighbor, maybe a person at work. Could even be somebody that you've seen maybe as a celebrity and you've seen them, you know, tear down the Christian faith or talk against church or whatever. Or there are these, of course, scholars that go around even in different parts of the world trying to teach people that there is no God and that Christianity is kind of a dumb thing to believe in. Some are much more, you know, much more attacking than others. Now, some of these individuals can seem totally unreachable. And you can't even imagine one scenario where that person that you're thinking of might turn to God or consider the claims of Christ. Maybe you just think it's so hopeless. And of course, from our point of view, we would like everybody to come to know Jesus as their Savior, to go to Christ for forgiveness of sins. But this morning, we may see the person who forever stands out or stands at the front of the line of those who would never ever consider the claims of Jesus Christ. And if you had someone in mind who you think was the least likely to come to Christ, you will probably have to concede to this person that I'm going to mention in a minute. Because I don't know if there can be anybody that would top this person. And we read a tiny bit about him last Sunday. So let me again read these three verses from Acts chapter 8, and we'll see who this is. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Now, that was when they stoned Stephen, right? And after he finished saying his, his speech... They got so enraged, they took him out and stoned him. And so that unleashed a great big persecution, you know, in Jerusalem there. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. <clears throat> this is who I think stands at the front of the no way in the world line. And we went on to read last week how all the Christians, after Stephen was, was stoned and killed, how they all fled into, uh, into outer Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and preached the word wherever they went. 
So we saw the gospel message take flight outside of Jerusalem. And it was ignited by the stoning of Stephen. People fled to preserve their own lives. But as they fled, they spread the gospel message. And that was the genius of God. You know, who knows how long it would have taken them to start going out and spreading the message. But boy, that took, you know, an instant. But now we turn to one of the most significant events in the Bible. So I want you to look with me as I read from chapter 9 of Acts, 1 through the beginning of verse 19. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they call the Christians, you know, members of the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, here is the first point I want to make about what we've read. We may think of church as simply something that we're just a part of. And you know, there are many churches in Tahlequah and all throughout Oklahoma. And we come to learn about God as we look into his word. 
We come to worship him because we believe that he's worthy of worship. We come to be a part of a Christian fellowship or a Christian family. We like our children to grow up in church so they can be around quality people and learn good things and learn how to live right. And all of these are really good things and good reasons to be here. But an important message that the book of Acts is teaching us is how Jesus Christ is commandeering his church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are his body. We are the body of Christ on earth. He is running the show. You know, he lived with his disciples for three years to train them so that they could become the foundation of the church. The Bible says the apostles and prophets are the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And we are the bricks on top. We are the body of Christ on earth. He is leading. He lived with his disciples for three years to have them become the foundation. He chose the exact day to send the Holy Spirit to officially birth the church. It was the day of Pentecost. It was a, it was a celebration day for the Jews. And so Jews from all over that part of the world were coming to Jerusalem. And that's when Jesus decided to send the Holy Spirit, you know, you know strategically. And so many people became Christians. So many Jews became Christians at that time. And at the beginning of Acts, Jesus is giving orders to the church as the foundation is being laid. He doles out spiritual gifts to his different people for specific purposes. He's equipping people for specific tasks. The apostles are performing miracles in his name. They're getting the church started and, and they're helping the church begin to move. They're continually teaching in the temple. And then we saw how Jesus allowed Stephen to be killed by the enemy, which on the surface looked nothing but bad. Was Jesus in control even in that instance where they killed Stephen? But then we saw how Stephen's martyrdom catapulted the church out beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. It says that wherever the disciples went, because of Stephen's murder, they spread the gospel message. The genius of God. But we might say, yeah, but Stephen couldn't have God found someone not quite so special. Well, you know, I can't pretend to be able to give an answer for God. But I don't know how many people could have stood before the Sanhedrin like Stephen did and tell them exactly to their face what they needed to hear that would get them all riled up to get the results that he got as far as the church spreading out into Judea and Samaria. It was that one act that got the church spreading out and becoming a church that moves. And then we have this man named Saul. He hates the church. 
He's a Pharisee. I mean that literally. He's a Pharisee. <laughs> Not like we call each other Pharisees, but <clears throat> I'm sure he hated Christ. Now we read in verse 1 of the chapter that Saul kept breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he's the one who went to the high priest to get permission to go to Damascus and to bring back any of these new Christians that he would find back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. And the way that Luke writes it, as we just read it, it seems it was totally his idea. Now back in chapter 8, it said that Saul went house to house in Jerusalem and he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But now he wants permission to go to Damascus to bring back any followers of Christ that he finds there, bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. It's normally a four to six day journey. Now can you imagine how serious this guy was? I mean, how many people do you think would want to go on a horseback on a four to six day journey, one way to bring people back to jail? I think most people would be groaning if they were given that assignment. Can't you get somebody else? But it looks like Saul initiated the whole thing. I mean, this guy was devoted to his mission. He really thinks that this Christian religion is threatening the Jewish faith. And guess who is going to bring Saul over to the opposite side? We already know, don't we? Because Jesus is directing the church. Jesus is making the calls. Who's really in control here? You know, it looks in the story that if that <clears throat> perhaps Jesus body slams Saul to the ground with the flashing light from heaven, and he asks him, Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus is standing in for the church, for the whole church. And listen to this. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. Who's in control here? Who's, who's the commander? Who's making the decisions? Who has the playbook or the script? Is there any doubt in anybody's mind? You know, sometimes we see church as just something that happens... And it just happens. But that's not really what's behind church. When Saul gets up and he, he doesn't just brush himself off and then walk with his head held high with a confident gait, he opens his eyes and he can't see anything. He's helpless. That's Jesus doing that. He had to be led by the hand into Damascus. That's part of the plan. Jesus sure knows how to tame a wild stallion, doesn't he? 
And he allows him to stay sightless for three days. And it appears that Saul himself chose not to eat or drink anything. Time of fasting. And then he gives Saul, Jesus gives Saul a vision of a man named Ananias that's going to come and restore his sight. Who's calling all the shots here? Ananias isn't too keen about meeting Saul of Tarsus. He's heard of all the reports. I mean, who would want to? And Saul has this far-reaching, widespread reputation. No believer wants to go near him. But then Jesus tells Ananias, go. This is the one who will proclaim my name to the Gentiles, their kings, and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Who's calling the shots? Jesus is in full control, isn't he? A lot of things happen in churches. A lot of things happen in the world. It often seems like it's just us making all the decisions. And we do make decisions, of course. But is there somebody behind making the overall decisions? He's even arranging the pieces, isn't he? He just took the other side's most valuable player. And I don't think he had to go through any kind of negotiations to do it. You see these football teams as they're approaching the season and they're, they're you know, trying to negotiate over different players. And it takes weeks and months and, and all kinds of back and forth with money figures. Jesus doesn't do that. So Ananias does what he's told. Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He can see again. He got up. He got baptized. That means he was totally identifying. For him to get baptized means he was fully now into Jesus Christ. The prominent meaning behind baptism is to be identifying with whatever we're being baptized into, what, what faith we're saying that when we get baptized, we're saying that we are identifying ourselves as those who belong to Christ, who are a part of Christ. So the picture here is that Jesus is the head of the church. He sacrificed his life for the church. He redeemed it through his sacrificial death. He is the head. And all who come to him in repentance for forgiveness are a part of his body. And we do not dare to risk our relationship to him. So now let's look and see what happens as Saul becomes a part of Christ's body. Our last verses, 19 through 31. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on his name, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, he got all that from the Old Testament. <clears throat> After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. Those are the ones who are outside of Jerusalem, more of a Greek culture Jew. But they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So more planning by Jesus on how to, what decisions to make, what to do, when, and where. Saul spends time with the disciples in Damascus. He visits the synagogue, astonishing everyone, both with his preaching and also with his completely changed life, his changed view of Christ. He majors in baffling the Jews of Damascus by proving that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, according to the scriptures. Then the Jews conspire to kill Paul, but his followers help him escape. In the dark of night, they let him down. Welcome to the ministry, Paul. That's probably the, the best thing he's going to see, getting let down in a basket. He goes back to Jerusalem, and the saints there don't believe he's safe. Barnabas vouches for him. Barnabas is a trusted person. But then as he gets into debates with the Hellenistic Jews, they try to kill him. So his new friends send him home to his hometown. And then Luke says at that point, the church enjoys a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church increased in number. Well, you probably noticed that when Paul leaves Jerusalem, the church throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria enjoy a time of peace. <laughs> There's a connection there. Things kind of just quiet down. Paul's gone. It seems like he was a lightning rod. And having him go to his homeland for a while led everyone to, joy, to enjoy a time of peace and grow in their faith and in their fellowship. It took the pressure off for a while. That's Jesus again, commandeering. And Paul was his lightning rod. Stephen was sort of a lightning rod. But you see, Jesus is putting everyone where they belong 
and he's making all the decisions. It says they were living in the fear of the Lord and they're encouraged by the Holy Spirit and the church increased in numbers. And you know, Jesus planned that too. He wanted to give them a break from all that commotion, all that worry. And they were able just to grow in the Lord. And so Jesus gives us times of growth and peace. But you know, my question is, How can they enjoy a time of peace and be encouraged by the Holy Spirit if they're living in the fear of the Lord? Can you live in fear and at the same time enjoy peace and be encouraged? Well, the short answer is yes. Fear of the Lord really translates into respect and reverence and awe. Fear of God for the believer is this deep-seated reverence and this enormous amount of respect. And as we read the Word of God, we learn more and more of who God is. Who He is, His power, His holiness, His love, His compassion, you know, His brilliance. We, We learn it from His Word, from teachings, from sermons, from writings, from books. And the more that we develop a sense, the more we get to know God, we develop a sense of this great respect or, or awe by coming to know more about him. The more we can develop a healthy fear, which is really a deep sense of reverence. I think one thing that we could never know enough of is the greatness and holiness of God and the evilness of sin. Now, the opposite of a healthy fear of God is what we are seeing in our society more and more today. You know, when people boast in their immorality or they flaunt their sinful choices, that is a very disrespectful attitude toward God. If people are just out smashing windows, stealing, looting. There's no healthy fear of God in that. A healthy fear of God keeps us from doing evil. Some of the stuff and behavior we see going on today, like, you know, trashing stores or restaurants, stealing and looting, rioting, destroying property, that's, that's disrespect towards God. And you know, as I see us moving further away from God and people making statements against God directly, it almost makes me shudder inside because I'm just thinking of people standing before God at the judgment seat. Wow, it's going to be pretty horrific. So you know, when we live in respect for what is good, we are honoring God because God is good. When we help others and we treat others with kindness and we're generous to those in need and respectful to our spouses and friends and children, that's a healthy fear of God. We are acknowledging God's existence and his goodness. And now as we close down our passage this morning, 
We know that Christ is the head of the church. He has the ultimate control. There's a, there's a lot of freedom in that for us. But he's the one overall steering the church. And it will come at the end, according to the scriptures, Christ will bring it in to, to a landing at some point. Going to be a lot of stuff happening, and it's going to look like there's no way anything good could come out of it. But we just stay with Christ. And we're here to serve the church. We're here to honor him, love one another with reverence for God, and trust knowing that Christ will bring us to a landing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because it teaches us so much and helps us so much. And we want to have that healthy fear of you. Not a fear like most people think, but just a reverence for you that helps us in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we could impact others in a good way and have others come to know you because they learn the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.